0: heavenly father you are so good to us for you have given us your word a true revelation a way to know your heart and your mind and we stand in awe before it because we're not left to our own imagination own vain ideas It, it is you who speaks to us you who make yourself known to us and we're grateful for that but i also recognize that right now um i'm desperately in need of your help be with my mouth with my mind and my heart as I try to share your word to your people. Lord, may may Christ's word truly permeate everything about this room and and, and everywhere. It will be heard. May it it be in our hearts and in our minds and changing us. We we want every letter and every word and every argument of what Christ has to say to really burn our souls and change us radically. As he he speaks to his own disciples, we want to hear it as well. And and so we're asking, Lord, at at your feet to to please receive also this manna from heaven to also be taught by you. Yeah, Lord, I I definitely pray that you would be with me as I I, um, bumble through your wonderful words. And, uh, Father, please help us to to be faithful to what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last time when we were together, I asked everyone to use their sanctified imagination, try to put themselves in the shoes of 11 men, eating their Passover meal with their rabbi, a man they suspect being the Messiah. So they're just trying to put the puzzle pieces together, and that's when Jesus flips the table. He sends puzzle pieces everywhere, and he tells them, I'm going to die. Wait, what? No, no, you're the Messiah, you're going to conquer. Wait, we gave three in a half years of our lives, to follow you, and now you're saying it's all over? You can understand their fear, their anxiety, their questions, they keep popping up during the conversation. Because what is going on right now? This is what we call the uproom discourse. This is where Jesus decides to help them in their fear and anxiety by what I like to call a TGS, a typical Jesus sermon. Think of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plains. Jesus will talk about a variety of subjects with one overarching truth. Like the Sermon on the Mount. He'll talk about the Beatitudes, the deeper meaning of the law, uh, prayer, fasting, and of course false teachers. But one main truth, life in the kingdom. Well, the same thing is going on in this upper room. He's going to talk about bearing fruit, uh, the coming spirit, praying, abiding, and believing in him. But one truth. And that is life without Jesus. In the sense of life with him being gone, what do they do now? That is the, the main uh, reality of the Upper Room Discourse. But we cannot forget that it's Jesus reassuring the disciples, these specific 11 men. There are moments when Jesus will talk about all disciples, whomever, but for the most case, he's telling them something. We'll glean from that for ourselves, but we cannot forget that he is talking to them. So, with that said, I think it'd be good for us to have the context of what's going on and actually turn to uh, John chapter 14. And I would like to actually read the fullness of the text first, and then we'll break it down piece by piece. I think by having the context, you'll have a better understanding of what I'm trying to say. So we'll read 15 to 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and, my father will love, uh, and the Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now, Last time around, another thing I mentioned is how the text we were in, 1 to 14, was undergirded by one main truth that was like guiding light for the rest of the text. Verse 1, believe in God and believe also in me. Or in other words, as the same way you believe in Yahweh, you must also believe in me. And the rest of the text is him explaining how and why they should believe in him in the same way. Well, the same thing is happening here. It all begins with this idea of, if you love me, that's the over, this undergrading truth that will then move the conversation along, because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments because I will ask the helper. This helper is the spirit of truth, which will dwell in you. It's actually Christ dwelling in you, and that's how you can keep his commandments. That's what it's getting at. But right now, we're only to verse 21. That's when one of the disciples will speak up and ask a question. And that little transitional passage, 22-24, uh, 20, between both sections, the first and the last, will keep it for ours because the way he answers, it, it's a simplified, condensed version of what he was, he was saying in 15-21. and 21. He's going to explain it in a much, much more uh, to-the-point type of way this going to be very helpful for us to make sense of what he's saying in verse 15 to 21. So that's why we're taking a big bite out of this text right now. So, again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which is really important because nowadays a lot of people are talking about we love Jesus. Or they'll even simplify Christianity by saying it's all about loving Jesus. But he says himself, if you love me, it will show itself by the fact that you keep my commandments commandments. There will be something to see. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't actually mention what the commandments are, and throughout the speech he never will, actually. He'll never get into any details of what the commandments are in detail, yet he will allude to things as we move along, and you'll see later on what I mean. But for now, we know that we have to keep them. And yes, it's about obeying, but what's interesting is the Greek word talks about protecting, guarding in the sense of keeping. So it's in the sense of you see something and you treasure it, you see the beauty of it, therefore you want to keep it, you want to protect it. Think of the Proverbs, right, that talks about the, the preciousness and the beauty of wisdom and th- so you should search it out. Or think of the many Psalms, Psalm 119, that talks about the preciousness of the law of God, how this, this author is searching it out because he wants it to lead his path. It's the same kind of thing here. If you love Christ, you will treasure, you will honor, you will see the preciousness of his word, his commandments, and want to follow them. Now, I even said his word because later on he will equate commandments with his very word. So we see that it's not just about the rules itself. It's the fullness of scripture. And again, it's, it's so telling because nowadays very few Christians actually read their Bible Many haven't read it in its fullness, haven't tried to study it or understand it. And yet, here's Christ saying to truly show your love, to truly have this love, you will see the preciousness of it. You will dwell in it and search to live it out. So, it's quite important. And yet, it should weigh on us. I mean, I can put myself in the shoes of the 11 disciples right now. Now, Jesus, we know a bit of our history, uh, we never obeyed the commandments. I mean, uh, let's see, in the desert, the golden calf. Uh, time of the judges, let's not talk about that time. And even the time of the kings, barely did Israel ever obey the commandments. So what are you asking of us, Jesus? We can't do that. And that's why it leads us into verse 16 and him saying, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, don't miss that the end at the beginning of the verse connects to what we've just seen. To be able to love, cherish, and live out the word, I will do my part, and that's to ask for the helper. You do your part, I'll do my part, I will ask for this helper. Now, don't miss that he actually says, ask. Ask. It's interesting to think that Jesus will be asking the Father for something that has been preordained, predestined, and prophesied, right? The Spirit will dwell in them. So what does he need to ask? Well, when you backtrack just a few verses in verse 14, and he talks about the need for them to pray, to ask the Father, you're starting to put it together. Now, no, it's not exactly the same Greek word, but it's still the same idea, asking or being independent of God, of the Father. So I'm telling you, you must pray, and I'm going to show the example because I'm also going to ask the Father something. Do do you see the connection? Now you might ask, okay, but why is this useful, Martin? That's a great question, guys. When you realize that these men and their rabbi have seen incredible things, right? Jesus could heal a leper by touching him. He could tell people who are sick and unable to move, get up. Take your bed and leave, and they did. People who possessed of demons trembled before him. So, yeah, demons are afraid of Jesus. He could speak to the storm. He could speak to the dead, and they listened. And then he gave some of that power to them, right? They could heal the sick. They could cleanse lepers. They can cast out demons. But now he's saying it's not about that anymore. It's about asking the Father. It's about being dependent dependence to God. Because yes, miracles by the help of God is great because it's you doing the miracles by His help, but prayer is, I can't do anything, you must. So it's fascinating because there are certain branches of Christianity that will like to put all the accent um, when they look at the primitive church to the miracles. They'll focus on all the great things that happened and forget their accent was on prayer, their dependency on God. They'll talk about Paul and the amazing miracle worker he was and they forget that most of his teaching... Is about prayer, not miracles. And here's Christ showing the example, saying, I'm going to ask. Speaking of Jesus, remember what happened when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, right? He uh, actually prayed. It's not on the board because it's last minute. But uh, so Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. That they may believe that you sent me. And then he asked uh, his friend to walk out of the tomb. Interesting that in this prayer, he actually never asked anything of God. He simply said, I thank you because you will do it. Yet now he's saying, I will ask the Father something. Because again, it's a paradigm shift. Something is changing right now for them. And for what they say for Christianity, it's all about asking. But I digress. Because he's also saying that what he's going to be doing is sending another helper. Another of the same kind. And we could ask, what does he mean by another? Helper, comforter, advocate. Same way to translate the same word. Well, I like the way our brother Calvin uh, actually explains this verse. This is the way he translated it. I was given to you by the Father to be a comforter, but only for a time. Now having discharged my office... I will pray to him to give another comforter who will not be for a short time but will remain always with you. So in the sense that he was a comforter, a help, a support, now it will be his job. Now by doing that, we, we can see that Christ is equating himself, connecting to the helper, right? He, he's kind of one with the helper even though it's, it's still veil right now. He's going to make it clear that him and the helper are one. When he, when he talks later on about how they won't be orphaned because he will be with them, he, he's still talking about this helper. It's interesting because in the first section, he said how the Father and him are one, and now he's trying to say that the helper and him are one. He's basically preaching the Trinity, but they don't, they don't get it yet, I guess. But like I said, the word helper also can be translated comforter, advocate, and literally means to be next to somebody. It was used the lawyers who were next to people to defend them in court. But the root is really about being next to, being with, being that support. And he will be there forever. Now this is Jesus slowly making them understand that this new helper is much better than the one they have now. Because even if Christ wouldn't have been crucified, he was still in an immortal body and would have died. But this comforter will be forever much better. But he still doesn't explain how is this going to help them to obey the commandments, right? Well, that's why he tells them it's the spirit of truth. He's the one that's going to reveal these commandments to you. Here again, he's not going to explain what he means by the spirit of truth. But later on, and I will dare to jump all the way to chapter 16, he will say, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come, eschatology. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, his commandments. Now, of course, we know even more than this. He's actually going to mandate certain men, Peter, John, James, Jude, stuff like him and Paul, to write these commandments for us, the epistles. But that's what he's getting at. He's getting the fact that this spirit will illuminate us, make his word precious to us, and therefore guiding us in these commandments, in this truth. But then he says something kind of particular, weird maybe. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. There's actually at least two questions that should pop into our mind when we read that. The first being, Why? You're talking to us about obeying you, and then you start talking about the world. Why, Jesus? Now, I'm going to answer the first question after I answer the second question. Leave you hanging a bit. But the second question is actually, what does he mean by they can't see him because technically the spirit can't be seen by anybody? Why is that different? Why is the world not able to see him, but, but the disciples can? No one can see the spirit. He is, by definition, a spirit. And it's what he says in the rest of the verse that starts to make sense. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. We're starting to see that he's doing what they call a chiastic structure, that he's saying the same two things in a mirror effect, where he's saying on one side, he's saying on the other side. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, Nor knows him is connected to you do know him. They don't, you do. And then we keep pushing the boundaries a bit more. They don't see him, but he does dwell with you. What does he mean by dwell with you if it's not the idea that they can recognize the work of the Spirit? Think of Jesus' ministry, okay? Think of how in his ministry, many came to see the miracles, many left too because they didn't see that it was the work of God. Think of the Pharisees clearly saying this is the work of Beelzebub even. And what did Jesus say to that? You're blaspheming against who now? The Holy Spirit. They couldn't see it was the work of the Spirit, yet the disciples, when he said that those amazing words of drink my blood and eat my flesh, they stayed, because they could see that came from the Spirit. Even if they couldn't fully comprehend it yet, they could still see in a way that these people didn't. So, then he then adds to that, and will be in you. Now, this is where it gets complicated, actually. Um... According to the older and more reliable Manishki, this is actually what he says. He and is present tense in you. Is it meaning that they're already indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Easy answer, no. Because John himself, who was one of the eleven, who was in the upper room, will actually say this. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In the upper room, is Jesus glorified yet? Again, no. So they're not indwelt by the Spirit. What does He mean by He's already in you? Again, I believe it's they recognize that the work of the Spirit is being done. Because they could see His work and some don't, because the Pharisees call it, Uh, the work of Beelzebub, but you say, no, it's the work of the Spirit. You're recognizing the Spirit is already at work in you because you're seeing things others aren't. I believe it's in that sense he's saying that he's already in you. He's already preparing you. Now, why is this important? This brings us back to that first question. Why would Jesus mention this? And I'm going to leave you hanging as I take a sip of water. I think the answer is simple. We remind ourselves he's talking to the eleven. He's speaking to these men who are fearful and scared, and and in a couple minutes, a couple hours, they're gonna lose their rabbi, and he's gonna really disappear for a couple days. What did they do now, right? What's gonna happen? Jesus talked about a spirit, but but they already saw him at work, right? They already recognized that the spirit was at work in their hearts. They could see it in Jesus' ministry. They had that pre-assurance therefore when jesus said the spirit will come they can be certain of that isn't the way our god usually works if we want to glean from this that he always gives this preparing work this little initial something to then reassure us that something greater is coming right he seals us with the holy spirit as a promise that we will be with him forever I believe that's what he's doing here, Christ. He's preparing them by saying, because you're recognizing the work of the Spirit already, you could be certain, even though it won't happen right at, when after die, you're going to be certain that you, you'll, you'll still be okay because you're already recognizing something that the world isn't recognizing. That's their reassurance that they, they didn't make a mistake. They're not following the wrong guy. And he's going to continue to try to encourage them and tell them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here's what I mean by he is equating the spirit to himself. He's talking about the fact the spirit will come with them. That's the way they won't be orphans. And yet he's saying, it's me, Christ. He continues to reassure them, actually, by saying, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Now, clearly he's talking about his upcoming crucifixion. But what does he mean by you will see me? Here, I don't think he's talking about the indwelling of the Spirit, but the fact of him showing up in his resurrected state, right? his glorified body. The disciples got to see that, not the rest of the world. They got to see the resurrected Christ, and they got that reassurance, and I believe this because of the because. When he says, because I live, you also will live. This is just a statement. The fact that I am alive right now is when you see me again, in a resurrected state, having conquered death, you'll understand what I meant when I said to Martha, I am the resurrection, and who believes in me will not die, but I have eternal life. You're, you're going to start to understand that I was the great shepherd who gives my life, so my sheep have life, abundant life, not earthly life, eternal life. You're going to get it when you see me again. It's in that day, as he continues, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. You're going to understand what I'm teaching right now, that me and the Father are one, that I'm God. You're going to recognize I'm not just a prophet saying inter- interesting things. You're going to recognize that I'm just not just a sent by God, but I am God. You're going to start putting the pieces together when you see me again in a glorified, walking-through-wall state. But then he says again something kind of weird. Jesus just loves to do that, I guess. And you and me and I and you, we understand it, right? We understand we have the epistles. We know what he's talking about. I mean, first, Ephesians 1, we are in Christ, our new identity. His justification covers us. We even understand his, him indwelling us, right? It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Just sanctification. But for them, what would that mean? You were talking about being one with the Father, but now you're just talking about us in you, and you and us? What, Jesus? And then there's the Spirit too. You can understand where at some point, very close, they will start asking questions again. Because it's kind of weird what he's saying. It's questionable. But it's good because the questions will give us greater answers. But before we get there, we see that Jesus will kind of broaden his his scope and actually say, whoever. That's disciples of all times. That's us. Here it's Snowden, 2021 and soon 2022, who has his commandments, right? It's called the word of God and keeps them. Oh, he had to go there again, right? He keeps hitting that nail over and over again, hitting that note. Make sure we get it. It's all about the treasuring and the obeying of his commandments. And then he says, he it is who loves me. And again, this is where it gets kind of harsh, I could say. Because in the Greek, the way he expresses it, it's really he and he alone who loves me. He and no one else loves me. That's kind of dogmatic of Jesus, right? Like when he said that he is the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Pretty dogmatic of him. And he is saying the same thing. It's the one that treasures and obeys his commandments that truly loves him. Now, of course, we know about regeneration. We know about the work of the Spirit from election past that brings us to love and obey his word. We we understand that, but still that is what Jesus is saying. And same thing when he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. It's not earning the Father's love. It's the reality that because your heart is now regenerated, circumcised, your heart now has the law of God in it and you treasure it, Then, yeah, you are in Christ, and therefore you have the love of the Father. And then he adds, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Okay, now that's too much. That's why at this point, Judas will speak up. Because the first statement was kind of bizarre. You and me and I and you. And and then he says, I'm going to manifest myself to you alone. So we understand that Jesus speaks up and says, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Right, again, let's let's put ourselves in the shoes of these 11 men. Manifesting Christ means miracles. It means healings. It means resurrections. So how can you say you're going to do that, you're going to manifest yourself, but the world can't see that? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. Because like many, even nowadays, our mentality of manifesting Christ is an incredible demonstration of power. It is, we get our own vision of Jesus in our dreams or in real life. It's 10 foot tall Jesus or something. So we understand Jesus' question saying, how can you say you're going to manifest yourself, but the wall won't see it up? But this, like I said, permits Christ to clarify his words from before and say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And this is what I meant by commandments and word go together. You know, the the Bible is not an instruction manual for Christians, as some have said. It is the mind and heart of God put in our hands. That's why we treasure it, right? Anyone in a relationship, friendship, couple, whatever, we know if you really love that person, you want to know what's on their mind and heart. You don't say, I love you, but don't tell me how you think and feel. So, it is important that Christ comes back again, it hits that same note, that same nail once more, one more time and makes it clear to them is about this love that is shown in the treasuring and obeying of his word. And my father will love him. And now he explains. And we'll come to him and make our home with him. It's not about manifestation in a sense of extravagance, but intimacy, right? The spirit living in you making his word precious to you, and in that communion with God. It's the same kind of words we read in Revelation when he tells the church of Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Talking to Christians, by the way. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's the manifestation Christ was getting at. That's the one Judas and his disciples are not getting yet. They're so used to the whole miraculous uh, time of ministry that they don't get it. It's all about the intimacy, which they're going to get with the spirit living in them, who's going to be Christ in them. So they're starting to put it together. But then Jesus says something kind of on a sour note. He decides to in, end with a, the wrong key, I would say, in a sense. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. That's one of those statements that Mr. Bauckham would like to say. If you can't say amen, you have to say ouch to this because they hurt. They really sting. It's not enough that he's been saying this, this, if you really love me, you will treasure my word. But guess what? If you're not treasuring my word, then my love is not in you. Well, how dare you, Jesus? Right? I, I asked you into my heart. I professed it a long time ago. How can you say that I don't love you? Well, guess what? I'm not the one saying it. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Oh. He said kind of the same thing before, right? When he was talking about believe in me as you believe in God because me and the Father are one. And I am the way to him and only the, the only way. And that's the Father saying that. And here's he saying the same thing. Exploding another theological bomb. That this love for Christ will be shown only by treasuring his word and if it's not the case, there is no love in your heart and this is what God has to say. This really rubs against the grain of most of modern Christianity that kind of waters down, simplifies the gospel, tries to separate justification and sanctification. Christ says, no, they, they, they go together because it's the work of the Spirit, of course. Now, do not forget that what Christ's greatest commandment was. Now, now, pay attention to the words I used. When Christ was going around during his early ministry, the greatest commandment he laid on people was what? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in me. Yes, he used the greatest commandment, love God, but just to show them that they didn't because no one seeks after God, no that one. He was reminding them that you are all sinners, None none of you are good little Israelites. You are all sinners. And you must turn from that, recognize that, and turn to Christ. Because you've sinned against a Christ holy, eternal God. There's going to be an eternal punishment. But he who is good put it on his own son. But again, when we come to the cross, it doesn't just end there. It's not just, I believe Jesus died for my sin, period. No, actually, there's two little dots there that continue the phrase that's going on. You go there, you die, you pick up your cross and you follow him. That makes you a disciple of Christ, right? It's sanctification, justification, work of the spirit that makes salvation. That's what Christ is getting at. He's talking about this kind of obedience that's going to be important for these men who know him, who believe him. It will be by the help of the spirit, though. Now, Brothers and sisters, we are definitely living in perilous times, right? It is getting worse and worse. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I mean, sin is rampant. Societies, government, they're doing everything they can to destroy everything God has built, to go against God in every way possible, even to attack his own children, as we see around the world. And it is tempting to say, Lord, fix it all. Make it right again. And yes, let's pray for that. But here's Christ talking to these 11 men who will suffer horrible persecution. Ten of them will die horrible death. One of them will live to old age, but he was going to suffer a lot for the name of Christ. And the apostle out of due season, Paul, will also suffer much for Christ, and they hear the same message. Here's what I'm asking you guys to do. Love me, and to love me, you need to treasure my word and obey. That's the same sermon he's giving us right now, which is why I like to finish by giving you some homework. Yes, I am the kind of teacher who gives homework during Christmas season. I will ask you to please take the time during the next couple of days to read through some of these passages like Ephesians 4-6 to and Colossians 3-4, to Romans 12-14, to and Galatians 5-6, to verse 5, where we are given many of the commandments, where Christ shows up the sins that we must put to death and the Christ-likeness we must put on. And let that sink in, that this is what it means to follow him and to truly love him. And may God, by his Spirit, give us all the help we need to make this possible. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, you are good enough to crucify your Son for our sins. You are good enough to save and redeem us. Our hope is found in the fact that you opened our eyes at some point and we said, Jesus, save me. Our hope is the fact that your spirit is in us because we recognize, at least I recognize, I can't obey your commandments. I can't treasure and live faithfully to your word. We've all been through those deserts when we don't want to read the word, when we get annoyed, when we are frustrated, when we're sinning. We need your help, Lord, in this. This is a a difficult time, a difficult season for everyone in one way or another. But you still tell us the same thing. If you love me, keep, treasure, love my commandments and obey them. And Lord, we we want your help for that. We, We are asking as well for the helper to be at work in our lives, to illuminate our minds, to show us the preciousness of what you say is good and what you say is bad. To show us what needs to die. And show us what we need to do as well. Out of love for you. We want to walk in the light with you. But we recognize that path is guided for us in your word. And so we, we are praying. Guide us by your spirit. Help us, oh God, in our weakness. And we pray all in Jesus' name. Amen.